This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. If Daniel Borstein was right, that planning for the future without studying history is like planting cut flowers, there is no more efficient way to begin studying history than Richard Haas's new book, The World, A Brief Introduction. And no better guy than Richard Haas. He is president of the Council of Foreign Relations, has served in the State and Defense Department, He's been a special assistant to President Bush one, to Colin Powell. He's been at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. He's received numerous awards. And in his spare time, he's written 14 books. So Richard Haas, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thank you, Roxanne. Great to be with you. Uh, So why this book and why now? Why this book is To make a long story short, there's an enormous gap between the importance of this world, its objective importance, and what most Americans know about it. And I decided to write this book because I couldn't find anything else that filled that gap. Most of the introductory books in the field are terribly boring. They are based on theory that bears precious little relationship to reality. It's almost as if they were written to discourage people from learning more about the field. (laughs) I decided I would uh, try to write something that didn't assume anybody had a lot of background. I would try to make it accessible and interesting. And what really led to it uh, was that I met this young man who was going into his senior year at Stanford, uh, majoring in computer sciences. And after a couple of questions and answers, it became clear that here, here he was about to get a degree from one of the great universities in the world. And he knew almost nothing about the world he was going to, to enter and this world that was going to frame and shape his, his life. And the more I looked into it, he was not the exception. He was the rule. You can graduate from virtually any high school or any college or any university in this country. And if you just manage to navigate your course requirements cleverly, you can essentially be, to use a harsh but true word, illiterate about the world you're going to enter. And I don't see then how you can be an informed citizen. I don't see how you can vote in an informed way. I don't see how you can make good career or business or investment decisions unless you have a a basic foundational grasp of what's going on in the world and why it matters and how it might uh, affect you. And again, that's that's what led me, someone who spent his whole life working on these issues with other experts, what I realized is that's not enough. It's not enough to have experts, experts. That's 0.1% or whatever. What I needed to do was try to write something that would help average normal people who have lives, have them get what they needed to, to better navigate their own lives. And, and Richard, one of the things I thought about as I was reading it, um, so when I think of propaganda, I think of propaganda as making you lose faith in any information you get because there's a a certain level of distrust and then you have some centralized force controlling you. So now in this era where we have fake news and people don't know what's accurate and 
not accurate. Does knowing history, do you think knowing history would also help people function in a more confident way about what they were reading or dismissive way of what they were reading, if that was appropriate? Short answer is yes. It, it gives you some protection. It gives you a filter. It gives you the ability to say, you know, put up your hand and go, whoa, stop. What you've just said isn't true or didn't happen. So, or give you a framework for judging. So if somebody says, this is a smart thing for the United States to do or not to do, you might then think about it and say, well, hold it. In a different situation, we did something else. Uh, so, and, you know, my goal is not to tell people what to think or to give them all the answers, but mm -hmm. it's to give them a bit of protection, as you suggest, and, uh, and some questions to ask. And that's the best way I know for the average person to hold an official or an elected representative to account is to bring some questions, to bring some skepticism, or if you read an article on the internet. Uh, there's a ton of material, but essentially there's no one there authenticating it. There's no, there's no gatekeepers on the internet. There's no editors. In some ways, you've got to be your own authenticator. And what I wanted to do, therefore, was write something that would help people, again, uh, deal with all the stuff that's coming at them. And Richard, do you think there's a greater need for, as you say, an authenticator now than there was in the past? Because one of the things I thought about reading the book and saying and, and appreciating how important it is to be an informed voter, it made me think, well, have voters been informed before? Were they better informed? Or is the need to be informed that much more critical now? Uh, both. Uh, I think we were slightly better informed. We had, when you and I were growing up, since we are of a similar vintage, uh, we had a, a Walter Cronkite or mm -hmm. to, to, to help us. There were, uh, you know, there wasn't the internet. There wasn't this rush of information that was yeah. uncorroborated, uh, unchecked. We read uh, this or that newspaper, which had more international so-called foreign bureaus than is the case uh, than is the, the case now. So, so schools tended to teach a little bit more about social studies or history. Yeah, we had civics and, and social studies. and Exactly. And a lot of these things have either been pushed to the side because of STEM or because of other activities or, 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 or budget cuts. Schools now, colleges and universities, by and large, are more reluctant to assert themselves and say, this is what you, John, or you, Mary, have to have before you graduate. Instead, there's much more, well, this is a restaurant. Come in and order whatever it is off the menu you, you like. You put together your own meal. We're not going to tell you what to do. So I think you've got all of that uh, going on. And then, yes, this is a world where, you know, again, we came of age in a Cold War. There was one principal big issue for others. The greatest generation, it was World War II. But now the, the range of issues, uh, because in part of globalization, you have all the traditional stuff going on in the world. We'll probably talk about it rising China, a cranky Russia, and so forth. But then you've got climate change, you've got cyber-related uh, issues, you've got infectious disease, uh, you've got any number of countries that have or want to have nuclear stuff. So uh, I actually think there is more objectively going on. Plus, look, mm -hmm. there's, there's nearly 8 billion people with a B in yeah. the world. That's obviously orders of magnitude more than we had 50 years ago. So your book begins in the 1600s. And um, if we had the time, and I would encourage everyone to take the time to read the book, 
uh, because it, it, it does in a very engaging way take us right back uh, to a very early time. But let's, let's talk about the contributing factors that existed post-World War II during this 70 years of incredible um, growth economically um, and the relative stability. So let's start with this question. Right after World War II, we very quickly went into the Cold War um, between the United States and Russia. What contributed to the Cold War staying cold? It's a good question, because um, twice before in the 20th century, when the major powers went at it, it didn't stay cold. Exactly. It was called, it was called World War I and World War II. So what was it about the U.S.-Soviet relationship? You know, human nature hadn't changed. Uh, <laughs> what I think did more than anything else uh, was nuclear weapons, as odd as that sounds. But for both sides, the fact that a dispute could escalate and lead to the exchange of nuclear weapons in which uh, there would be no victors. We would destroy humankind as we knew it and civilization as we knew it, introduced an enormous degree of caution into US-Soviet relations. And, uh, and written and unwritten rules of the road grew up about how uh, we wouldn't, for example, do things that would bring armed forces of the other into direct contact. We would have indirect competition in various parts of the world, in Korea and Vietnam and the Middle East, what have you. But the two great powers, the so-called superpowers, were incredibly circumspect in how they went about their relationship. Then they structured it in certain ways with arms control and other uh, agreements. But if you're, ask, if you're asking me, we didn't agree on a lot, the United States and the Soviet Union. So it wasn't based upon any consensus. I think it was based upon a, a balance of power in Europe. Uh, and more than anything, nuclear, the overlay of nuclear deterrence, which again injected a significant degree of, of caution. So one of the things that you spend a, a good amount of time and add a lot of clarity to are the ingredients that contribute to a balance of power or what you call a world order. And so if we think about the United States and Russia, there was that balance of power, that kind of push and pull. Now on the landscape, we have a third power, China. Um, and over the last, I would say, four, three years, uh, balancing that power has seemed a lot more unstable. It doesn't seem like you're seeing a kind of both pushback and pockets for cooperation. So how does China coming on to the um, landscape affect what would be the balance of power that would maintain world order? Look, world order requires historically two things. One is a degree of consensus or understanding about uh, what was acceptable, what was not, how are things meant to be changed, and then a balance of power. So if for whatever reason you didn't like the arrangements in place, uh, you wouldn't be tempted to use military force to change them. Uh, so there was a degree of consensus and a degree, if you will, of coercion. 
The question is, can you make that work in the current situation? It's complicated now because it's no longer just the world of two countries, the United States and the Soviet Union. You still have Russia, which still has as many nuclear weapons as we do, has armed forces, has very capable cyber forces. But you do have a rising China with great economic power as well as growing military uh, power. You've got countries like North Korea, like Iran, any number of others that are players in their, in their part of the uh, world. And so it's, uh, you've got more centers or poles of power, which automatically makes it more uh, complicated. Plus, there's not really an understanding anymore about how the world should work and what is legitimate, what isn't. So you've had in recent years Russia going into Ukraine and into Georgia. You have North Korea developing its nuclear arsenal. You have Iran promoting uh, its aims all over the Middle East using militias and terrorist groups to, to do it. So this is a dangerous period of history because you've got a lot going on. And a big thing is a lot of history is about rising powers and whether the friction that a power's rise costs, causes inevitably with the other leading power or powers of the day. So we're seeing that between the United States and, and China. And as if this were not enough, uh, I think what makes this period of history really difficult is we got all the normal stuff, all the traditional stuff of history that I write about. But then you have this new set of global issues like climate change, things like that that never really existed before or global uh, infectious disease. And the United States, which for 70 years, as you correctly say, has been so central to the fact that things have turned out pretty well since World War II, you suddenly have the United States that essentially wants to put its feet up on the sofa and say, I don't really want to do this anymore. And we saw shades of it in the previous administration. We see it in spades in this administration. And one thing history shows me is that without a country like the United States willing and able to play a large role, the world's not going to organize itself. Good things just don't happen in the world. Quite the contrary. History shows you that a lot of bad things kind of just happen. So I think what makes this period of history so dangerous is there's a lot of potential threats and things to cope with. All at a time, the United States wants to pull back from the world. And that's a, that's a dangerous brew. So there's a couple of questions that that raises in my mind. One is, as I was reading your book, I um, thought about whether this notion of isolationism is in our DNA and that are these 70 years the aberration because you look at statements from George Washington, you look at John Adams, you look at uh, Wilson in the role before World War One. You look at Roosevelt not wanting to risk uh, re-election and therefore not stepping in even as Germany occupied France. So which, it, which do you think is more representative of our DNA? Participating as a world leader or, you know, as you say, sitting back and putting our feet up and thinking as an isolationist? It's a great question. And it's a question I am wrestling with literally as we speak, because I'm working on a piece for the magazine we publish, Foreign Affairs, on just this. And that's the right way to frame it. What's, what's, what's the normal and what's the aberration? And as the last 75 years, which had a major American role and was quite orderly, and it's, you haven't had great power war, you've had increasing life you know, lifespans, You've had increasing, uh, improving standards of living, increasing democracy and freedom, 
is that is that the normal and someone like donald trump who comes along more isolationist more protectionist rest, is he the exception or just the opposite if you pull back as you were suggesting and you look not just at 70 years but you look at nearly two and a half centuries of american history those 70 years look like the exception mm-hmm. and traditionally we have hidden behind our our oceans and not particularly concerned ourselves with the affairs of the world and Washington in his farewell address warned against entangling alliances and Adams talked about not going abroad in search of monsters to destroy and so forth and so on. And I think for the United States now, we're at one of those really critical moments in our history where one, it's now what? It's three decades since the end of the Cold War and we're kind of without a compass. You know, we're still the most powerful uh, what's the metaphor to use? We're the most powerful ship at sea, but we're not quite sure what course we want to take. Mm-hmm. What do we, what's in our own self-interest to do? What's in our own self-interest not to do? Okay, so if we overreached in Iraq and Afghanistan, what constitutes underreach? Yeah. What's, how do we right-size American foreign policy? And the question you ask, uh, history could see us going either way. I'll be really honest with you. Yeah. And uh, my own bias is obviously that we stay heavily involved in the world, and not that we repeat the mistakes of Iraq or Afghanistan, but I'm more worried right now about a United States that does too little rather than too much. And one of the, you know, I don't argue a lot in this book. This is a book to give people background and right. tools, but there is an implicit bias, I'll admit it, about two things. One is the world matters, so isolationism doesn't make sense and that we need to stay involved in the world and we need to be involved with others, doing things ourselves. There's nothing we can do better alone though than we can do with others. So I do have two biases, which is we're involved in the world and we have partners. Now, the specifics, what we do with others, what is it we try to bring about? That's, that's the matter of debate. But, but I think you're asking the single most interesting question, which is where is America and its historical trajectory? And like you, I can frame it uh, but I don't think anybody knows the answer. So let's start with an element that determines the role of the United States or any country, and that is the the rule for intervention. That what are the determinants? You know, if you think about um, Bush one and the approach he took when Iran when Iraq invaded Kuwait. Um, I, I think you were with that administration then. But I was the, the middle, his, I was the, his Middle East advisor. So I was. Uh, good I job, a, Richard. Good job. So that, you <laughs> know, you. there, there was a coalition. It was determined uh, that um, that was the appropriate set of circumstances for mm-hmm. intervention. And then you know, some people disagreed, some people agreed, and they left, right? Mission accomplished, really mission accomplished. And then they left Kuwait alone, and they left Iraq alone. So what is it that we learn from that circumstances versus, for instance, Syria, um, using chemical weapons, to kill their own people with Russia's assistance, and we do nothing. So what do we learn from those two historical events? 
Well, it's, it's almost two separate sets of questions. One is when it is appropriate to use military force, and the other is how. Two right. very different issues. So in the case of 1990-1991, the, the so-called Gulf War, the decision was made to use military force because we thought that what Saddam Hussein was doing, which was using force to change borders, represented such a threat, such a challenge to the character of the world that if that was allowed to stand, the problem would not simply be that he would control a big chunk of the world's energy, but it would set a terrible precedent. And we didn't know whoever, who else might be encouraged to think that they could get away with it. So we literally thought that it was necessary to respond, going back to our conversation a few minutes ago, to maintain the rules of order. And if we didn't respond then, we would essentially set in motion a whole new dangerous era of history. And when we talked about what to do and what not to do, it was judgment. And we said we had to do it after we tried other tools. We tried sanctions. We tried diplomacy. Nothing worked. So we went in very heavily with military force. But we stopped also. We didn't go right. on to Baghdad. We, it was a, a heavy use of force, but a limited use of force. In the case of Syria, I think President Obama was right to tell the Syrian president, don't use chemical weapons or else, where he went wrong, President Obama, is that after chemical weapons were used, uh, we didn't follow up. And any time a president in the United States issues that kind of an ultimatum, I think it's a mistake not to carry it out. It raises fundamental questions about our reliability and seriousness. I think the ultimatum was right. I don't think we want to live in a world where chemical weapons are used with impunity. So I think the, the president was right in speaking where he got it wrong, was not acting. Now, we could, you could have had a conversation, and he did at the time. There was a whole menu of things we could have done militarily, uh, from very modest to very big. And, okay, that's a, that's a legitimate conversation about how to use military force. What would have been enough of a statement about if you use chemical weapons, you get hammered, but not such a large use of military force that we would get dragged into another uh, Middle East adventure. So the question was how to thread that, uh, thread that needle. But, but I, again, all of these are inevitably case by case, and there's all sorts of guidelines. But my, my own view is uh, you should be willing to use military force if you have important interests that are threatened. And if the use of military force looks to be more promising in what it can accomplish, than other things from doing nothing to diplomacy, to sanctions, to covert action, to what have you. So you, you look at what your interests are and you look at what the available tools are and you, you make the best judgment you can based upon what you know at, at the time. So do you think that uh, the absence of an action in Syria, which had Russia's back, backing, gave Putin and Russia the kind of willingness to flex their muscles and invade Ukraine? It may have led to it. I can't tell you. You can never run history over without certain things. But clearly it raised questions about the willingness of the United States to act in the world. And uh, I think you know, there were other things that President Obama was doing or not doing that were suggesting he had seen what his predecessor, George W. Bush, had done, who I think from Obama's point of view had overreached in Iraq and Afghanistan. And President Obama was, was certainly careful that he wasn't going to make the same mistake. And as is often the core case in history and human nature, you don't make the same mistake, you make a different mistake. <laughs> you make rather, a new one. Pardon me? 
to make a new mistake. Absolutely. And instead of overreaching, he decided to underreach. Okay. Right. And I think that's what, that's what happened. And others took notice. And I think, um, interesting enough, even though President Trump spends a lot of time criticizing President Obama, uh, he's actually much more like him than he would ever care to admit. Mm-hmm. Uh, this also was an administration that is underreaching around the, uh, around the world. So it's, it's ironic, but all the same, that they are both, in a sense, still reacting to the 43rd president, to George W. Bush. But the... the- the um, you know we could end up being the only podcast ever in the history comparing Trump to Obama. So let's let, I want I want to add another element that you talk about relative to world order, uh, like the role of NATO or the role of the World Health Organization. Mm-hmm. What what's the impact of not only Trump? Uh, continuing to remove the United States from the world stage, but on the way, destroying what systems and orders exist. That's what, I mean, it all feels dangerous to all of us, Mm -hmm. but that's sort of on the way, kicking down all the cans. I don't know that that's a good metaphor, but- um, It'll do. uh, That feels wildly dangerous. Well, again, it is. Uh, anytime you kick down a can, to use your word, you've got to ask yourself, do you have something better to put in that can's place? Uh, what are the consequences of kicking down the can? So in the case of NATO, which has helped to keep the peace in Europe now for 70 years, it seems to me it's dangerous to kick down the cans because, among other things, it's first it kept the Soviet Union at bay for 40 years. And now you have Russia that's shown its willingness to use military force in Europe, first in Georgia, then in Ukraine. So it seems to me it's dangerous if you potentially tempt Mr. Putin to think he could use military force to intimidate any of his, uh, any of his neighbors. And you know, Europe is still our most important set of partners. It's a quarter of the world's economy. So I don't want instability to come again to Europe. It came there twice in the early half of the first half of the 20th century. We don't need it again. In terms of something like the World Health Organization, you could look at it and say, this is a flawed body. And I go, I agree. It's flawed. Mm-hmm. Didn't do what it could and should have, should have done either against HIV AIDS, against uh, COVID-19. Fair enough. Then the administration decided to defund it and pull the United States out of it. And I go, well, hold it. Before you do that, what do you have that's better in its place? Something can be flawed, can be imperfect. But are you better off with nothing? So, you know, half a loaf can be better than none. So why not stay in it and improve it? Or why not, if you're going to, if it's flawed and you think it can't be reformed, it's so deeply flawed, then, then produce a new idea, a new institution, a new arrangement. But to simply leave, it seems to me you, you have no influence, you have nothing better to put in its place. So you're left with a flawed WHO without the participation of the United States. And the one thing we ought to have learned from this virus is that what happens in Wuhan doesn't stay in Wuhan. Mm. So you end up weakening the world's principal mechanism for dealing with disease. We are vulnerable, as we're seeing, God knows, every day with the yeah. numbers around the United States. So that to me uh, just makes zero sense. A much more you know, defensible policy would have been to, first of all, 
go to other countries in Europe, in Asia, and say, hey, we've got this World Health Organization. It's imperfect. Let's come together. Let's figure out a way to make it better. Or if we think it's hopeless, let's come up with XYZ Corporation uh, or organization, rather, that would do something uh, better than what the WHO can do on global uh, health. Any of those approaches make sense to me. The one thing that doesn't make sense to me is simply to take our money and ourselves and go home. Yeah, and go home. And so that'll, I'm going to hope that we get to talk about diplomacy um, because you, three times in this conversation, you've mentioned that as a critical element of steps that were successful. And I don't know that we're seeing diplomacy right now, but I want to go back to another piece that you talk about that has an arc in the book. And that is, we went from empires where you're ruled from afar to nationalistic interests where you feel like, okay, you know, it's our party, it's our country, we're functioning that way, to a period of coalitions, whether it was NATO, Europe, um, Asian coalitions. And now we're tilting back to nationalistic bets, uh, Britain pulling out of uh, the EU, um, the way we're pulling back, the instance with, you know, what's going on in Hungary or Turkey or any of these countries that are becoming um, virulently nationalistic. How much of that is part of an ebb and flow of how history goes and, and it's just another phase? Probably. Uh, it, as you say, it ebbs and flows. And usually you see rise of populist leaders or more nationalist leaders when either things go wrong inside a country. People get frustrated with uh, living standards or inequality or the lack of opportunity or uh, and people turn against the government of the day if they think that the government is not managing things. So that often leads to a desire for, for change. And I think in this global world, you also see countries trying to assert themselves because they feel in some ways at the mercy of events they can't control. Uh, so you see groups or countries, again, trying to uh, plant the flag against it and show their independence, show their autonomy. A lot of talk about sovereignty. And what will happen, though, is we'll see leaders who can't perform, say, in meeting economic or public health concerns will be Within thrown out their of country. Power. Within their country, they'll be tossed out ultimately. Yeah. Uh, and I think internationally, countries will probably the hard way learn that the only way to meet these global challenges, which, is, which are so central to this era of history, whether again, it's disease or climate or terrorism or what have you, is going to be by banding together. So my own view is that uh, populist leaders in power now will not fare well the Bolsonaros in Brazil and others because they're not performing well. Those leaders in power who are performing well will do just fine politically. And ultimately, the world will wake up and realize that it needs to work together to meet a lot of these challenges. The problem will be it'll be late in the day. And whether it's climate change or, some, or, glo or global health, infectious disease, by the time we get around to it, a lot of the good, inexpensive choices will have disappeared and we'll be up against it. And that's what, that's what worries me. We'll, we'll get there, but it will be so late in the day 
that the cost will be high and the choices will be few. So Richard, let's go back to, you know, you've made uh, in previous interviews, um, you've expressed a concern that we are at a, as a country and therefore as a world in a, at a precarious place. Um, we are um, about to have an election. Uh, there, you know, there have been a couple of articles in the Atlantic and other places about uh, America's not merely in decline, but actually has been humiliated, um, that the pandemic actually puts us as an object of pity. Um, <clears throat> to what do you, to what degree do you think the outcome of the election will inform the role that America will take in the next four years? And how will that be too late or soon enough? It's, it's another really good question at the risk of, flattering, at the risk of flattering you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's no mileage in flattering me. So. The, uh, look, I think it's a consequential election because the, the stakes are big and the choices are big. So with one caveat, I'll circle back to in a few seconds, I think you have very different paths represented by Donald Trump and Joe Biden in terms of America's role in the world, its willingness to work with allies, be, be a part of international institutions, uh, and so forth. So I, I think there are some, some big differences. And I think it's, a, in that sense, a very consequential, significant election and what we would have if we had four more years of Donald Trump as opposed to four years of uh, Joe Biden. But that said, in some areas, um, the differences are not black and white. On issues of trade, for example, the Democratic Party has become over the years quite protectionist. And so the question is how much freedom uh, President Biden, if he is elected, would have to negotiate trade agreements. On things like military forces in the Middle East, a lot of people in the Democratic Party uh, also, like the president, want to pull American forces back. There are those in the Democratic Party who will want to reduce defense spending. So again, I think the most powerful inclination in both parties is probably one of uh, the lesson of the last uh, of, of is still the re they're still reacting to forty three. Mm -hmm. They're still reacting to what they see as American. Uh, overreach to what they see as the, the costs of free trade. So that will, to some extent, hem in a President uh, Biden if he's elected. Also, I think who's ever elected either will have to deal with the fact that this is a country ready to also look inward. We've got the virus we'll still be dealing with, tens yeah. of millions of unemployed, racism. This is a country that has enormous challenges. And the pressure on who's ever elected this November will be to devote the bulk of his energies on fixing things here at, at home. So I, I actually think for the next, you know, again, there'll be big, there would be big differences, don't get me wrong, between a President Trump and a President Biden, then any president has a lot of discretion over, over what he and one day she can do. But, but I do think that you know, the mood of the country right now will be to focus, focus more inward than, than not. And, and Richard, the you know, the question that I think sits on many of our minds, so you talk about, you know, the internal problems. Historically, 
empires fail because they don't have the resources to look in and out, right? They can't be fighting on their borders and dealing with the internal issues that they've got. And to use that ebb and flow term again, which notion do you subscribe to that America is at the end of its glory or at an ebb to a flow? Uh, neither, because at this point, nothing's baked into the cake. Uh, we're actually in a position, if we wanted to have our cake and eat it, to, keep, to stretch the metaphor, uh, we could be active in the world and do everything we need to do at home. If you look at all we're spending in the world on defense and the like, it's a smaller percentage of our economy than we spent during the Cold War. And if you look at our domestic problems, whether it's uh, healthcare or education, it's not because of a lack of spending. We spend nearly twice the average of the other wealthy countries in the world on health. Yeah. So the problem is not how much we're spending, it's how we're spending. How, how. So we can do what we need to do in the world and what we need to do at home if we, if we politically get a, uh, organize ourselves to to do it. So I don't know if we will. So I don't know the answer to your question. I would simply say, though, that this is a, uh, a difficult period for any country to be a world power, because it's a moment where you have this whole new raft of global challenges. And you got a lot of entities around the world who have power as well, whether it's militias or terrorist groups or countries or the North Korea's, the Iran's. This is a world where there's a lot of, how would I put it, use the cliche, there's a lot of pieces on the chessboard and not all of them are pawns. A lot of them have quite mm -hmm. a lot of uh, strength. So it's a difficult moment. And indeed, the answer is you can't do it by yourself. The, the, what, the notion of a great power is not that you can do things alone. The notion of a great power is you can forge coalitions and collective efforts to take on these large regional and global Yes, and I don't know if we're going to do it. And yeah, I can, I think, lay out a, an approach that we could afford and would protect our interests around the world and make us better off here at home. But the, what I would advocate, I don't think the politics are there for just now. So the question is, will someone who gets elected either now or in the future think similarly and can he or she build public support to do it? That'll, that'll be the challenge. Yeah. And you know, there's a, the, the I, I generally rest in the optimistic planet. And that's probably uh, why we haven't met until now, since I, <laughs> I rest in the pessimistic planet. <laughs> I have a husband who rests in that world too. Um, if you're still but, married, it must be working. Yeah. <laughs> but the optimistic part of me wonders if the degree of interrelated problems like the pandemic, um, might begin to inform public opinion to actually be more globally engaged rather than, sure. you know, go home. As my grandmother used to say, from your mouth to God's ear. <laughs> and that would be one possibility that, look, you would have thought after 9-11, that we would understand certain things that yeah. what begins in remote Afghanistan doesn't stay there. Or now uh, people would say, wow, we really do need to be more involved in global health because what began in Wuhan didn't stay there. On the other hand, I haven't seen any big American or international effort on global health or on uh, climate change. So the answer is yes, 
you would think that when we pay a price for one of these global issues coming at us and hitting us like a truck, you would think that we'd learn our lesson and apply those lessons and get better positioned to head off or prepare for the next time it's going to happen. But so far, at least I don't see it. So I haven't given up hope, but I'm, I'm discouraged. I mean, the idea that we would pull out of the World Health Organization in the middle yeah. of a pandemic. Yeah. I mean, you couldn't make that up. No, and in that sense, it, 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 it's exactly the opposite of what you're suggesting. So you can, you know, yeah. you would think it'd be the natural response would let's double down and do more on global health. And instead, we're, we're, we're acting ostrich-like. And, and the lesson of this pandemic ought to be ostriches don't survive. You know, 9-11 brings up another issue that I've always been curious about. So this is a little bit from left field, but, you know, it's come up again. So 9-11, they were all Saudis, or they were predominantly Saudis. Mm -hmm. Um, Saudi Arabia never had any repercussion of it. Saudi Arabia has done a couple of nasty things over the last couple of years. There's um, always been the sentiment that uh, the balance of power between the U.S. and Saudi required a certain accommodation on our, on our part. Um, do you agree that we have um, appropriately accommodated the Saudis, or does it look more like the appeasement that was done during World War II to stop aggression and didn't do anything? Well, I would just say we have been uh, overly solicitous of the, uh, so after 9-11, these individuals, from what I can tell, did not act with government authority, but you're right, they were predominantly Saudi nationals, Uh, and the Saudis after that did make it more difficult for individual Saudis to send uh, money to such organizations, so I think that was a, a positive, but the Saudis have obviously been busy with, uh, you know, killing journalists. As we saw with uh, Mr. Khashoggi, we, Saudi Arabia has been pursuing a truly counterproductive war in, in Yemen. Yemen. So uh, I think, yes, if you're asking me, I would push back harder. Mm-hmm. And to me, we need the kind of relationship with, the, with Saudi Arabia that has a little bit more straight talk and probably a little bit more distance. The Saudis in some ways, they're not acting like an ally. An ally is a country that one of the things that makes a country a real ally or a partner is they take your interests into account before they act. Mm-hmm. And I don't see Saudi Arabia uh, yeah. doing a lot of that. So I would, uh, I would, I would take a lesson from that and I would become a, a little bit uh, more distant and a little bit uh, more demanding on our part. Mm-hmm. So let's take two very current events. Um, mm-hmm. There has been some chatter about Russia having uh, paid Taliban to effectively, or, or as collateral damage, end up killing American soldiers. Um, what do you make of that story? How true do you think it is? What do you think our reaction to that ought to be? Well, again, uh, I haven't had access to the intelligence. I'm no longer in the government. But for an issue like this to have been brought before the National Security Council, you only do that when you have sufficient confidence in the intelligence that you think it's uh, probably accurate. So I take that as a sign that there was good reason to think 
the Soviet, I mean, the Russians rather, were putting money on the heads of American soldiers and giving cash to the, to the Taliban. Uh, I don't know if the president was briefed or not. I find it hard to imagine he wasn't. Um, but regardless, uh, it seems to me we ought to have gone to the Russians and said, we've gotten word of this. Uh, if you go ahead with this, here will be the consequences you will pay, not just in terms of sanctions, but we will, uh, Russian soldiers in Europe and the Middle East will be endangered. If you endanger American soldiers, we'll endanger Russian soldiers. And I would have gone to the Taliban with whom I think unwisely we signed an agreement in February of this year and said, any hopes you have of seeing this agreement implemented from our point of view are going out the window if this goes ahead. So I would have been, uh, I would have acted on this. If, let me put it this way. If you have intelligence that you are sufficiently confident in to bring to the National Security Council, it seems to me we ought to act on it. And the fact that we do not seem to have acted on it seems to me uh, a, a, major, a, a major strategic error uh, and leaves our armed forces uh, much more vulnerable than, than, than they ought to be. We, we ought to be pushing back against both the Russians and the Taliban. Why, why do you think Trump is so soft on Russia? Look, I, I should have a nickel for or ruble for every uh, person who's uh, asked me that question over the years. I've heard all the theories. The answer is, I don't know. All I'll say is uh, it's not unique. He's also at times overly generous to North Koreans, to Turkish leaders, to Chinese leaders, to Philippine leaders. I don't, to, he just I wants don't understand. Because he wants to be one, I guess. Well, again, I'll let you go there. I will simply say <laughs> I see a pattern in behavior that I find uh, disquieting. And I, I, I don't think um, it's consistent with our national interests. Yeah. So it, it, that brings me to, uh, you know, like who's in the room uh, protecting uh, historical U.S. interests, which brings me to John Bolton's book. Mm -hmm. um, have you read the book yet? I've started it, but I find it just this side of unreadable. I'll be honest. So I doubt, I've read all the news stories. And if I were in the predictions business, I, uh, I don't see myself finishing the book. I, life's too short. Mm. And what do you think about him writing it in the first place, as opposed to uh, taking what he knew and dealing with it in a more political or investigative way? Well, my enthusiasm for Mr. Bolton is finite, and my enthusiasm for his having written the book is equally finite. Got it. He had a moment as a citizen where his responsibility was to speak up. He did not speak up. End of story. Yeah. I find that sad. I just, uh, I find it worse than sad. Yeah. There was a, to serve in government is a real opportunity, and it's a, it's a privilege. And part of the contract, it seems to me, is you owe things. And in this case, he owed not the opportunity to write a book and uh, make some money for, from royalties. He should have spoken up in, uh, at the time when the country was focused on that issue. I have no idea whether it would have made any difference in the outcome, but mm -hmm. it was. He suggests it wouldn't have. Well, the answer is he doesn't know. And that's, again, that's not his call. 
his call is to meet his obligations as a citizen who had an enormous privilege of serving, and I would argue he did not meet those obligations. Yeah. So speaking of those obligations, it seems to me that you've been generous in spending this time with us, and I ought to give you a moment for a uh, paid political announcement. What does the Council of Foreign Relations do? That <laughs> <laughs> you are the president of. Yeah, I've been lucky enough to been the president to be the president of this for about 17 years now. Uh, just beginning my 18th. Look, we were founded a century ago, and the whole idea is to have this organization that is nonpartisan, I should add, doesn't take any money from this or any government. We're independent. And we're there to, uh, more than anything else, uh, contribute to the debate in this country, to, to raise the quality of the conversation in this country about our, our, the American role in the world. We do it through you know, we have dozens and dozens of people who write articles and books. We do meetings. We have two wonderful websites. Uh, we uh, publish Foreign Affairs Magazine, which is the leading magazine. in the world. We, um, we're also now an educator. We're probably, I think, the leading educator in the country, teaching uh, Americans and others in high school and college life learners about the world. We are... Um, we're also a resource for citizens around the country, for the people who give sermons every week in religious uh, institutions, to mayors, governors, you name it, teaching them about the world. So we're, we're also a place where people get trained. One of the things I want to do is get many more young people in the field to create a pipeline uh, of young talent in this country that will then one day want to work at the State Department or want to work at the National Security Council or become an academic in this field or a journalist. So we're spending a lot of time developing uh, talent. But essentially, we're, in the, we're a resource trying to make sure that this country can have a smarter conversation and then better implement a, a smarter foreign policy uh, for, for, mm. you know, for ourselves. Yeah, for anybody who hasn't looked at the website or read the magazine, um, it I I one of the things that you know we talked about fake news or biased news that the integrity and the uh, bipartisanship of the work that's done is very appealing. Um, Thank you. And you have to tell them the website, Roxanne. It's cfr.org. Thank you. <laughs> CFR.org, everybody. CFR, you're right. And then, uh, or foreignaffairs.com. Yeah, I think they're both extraordinary uh, resources. We're proud of them. So, Richard, your book is eminently practical um, in the way in which it talks about history and the way you talk about world order and the future. So I'd like to end on that practical note uh, with a, a set of questions. What would you hope uh, any one of us that are citizens, just normal people, um, we've read your book, what would you hope are the one or two things that as citizens we would do? Well, I'd hope the principal takeaways from the book would be that the world matters. I need to learn about it and keep learning about it. My book's the beginning of that, not the end of it. Uh, the United States has to be actively involved in the world. What I would hope is people would make a commitment to stay up to speed, to read a good daily newspaper, to maybe read The Economist or read Foreign Affairs or you know, listen to NPR or something like that, basically to stay informed, to pay attention to what candidates for higher office say about issues. 
and to ask somebody before you're prepared to support them on uh, what their position is on this or that issue that, that, uh, that matters to you. I mean, I would think more than anything, it's to get informed, stay informed, and then hold those with power, hold them to account. And then my second practical question is, um, whoever is elected, since I'll stick to your bipartisanship, even though I'd go off on my own little opinion on this, um, if there were two things in the arena of foreign policy that you'd like to see them do first, what would they be? Uh, the, the, the first thing would be that they would, um, they would strengthen America's alliances. This is the greatest multipliers or leverages of American power and influence uh, that we have. So I would, I would revive our alliances. Secondly, I would start dealing with, arm, uh, with climate change. This is not going to get better with time. This is only going to, uh, to, uh, to get worse. And then thirdly, I would have this conversation with the American people. Mm -hmm. I would talk with them about the importance of the world and why American involvement in the world is both affordable and desirable and necessary. Uh, we've been talking with Richard Haas, The World, a brief introduction, a book I could not more highly recommend. Um, uh, it, you know, you can read it if you are uh, 11 or 81 or 100. It, um, I just think you've done a great job, Richard, and it's a good way for us to reacquaint ourselves with history so we're not planting cut flowers. <laughs> Thank you, Roxanne. I uh, enjoyed the conversation and uh, I won't even ask you to hold up the cover as it's a podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's right. I don't need You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.